even just having this project to work on was so important for me because I felt that I was doing something that was my passion because I love anything international and I love the gospel. <laughs> it was like this perfect blend, you know, for me. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Markcast. How you doing, everyone? I must say, I'm just going to start off by apologizing. It's been over two weeks since I put out my last episode. I got delayed with a lot of stuff at work, but a lot of it was just this podcast interview I did with Katarina. She did this book, which is a compilation of stories of people who joined the LDS church or the Mormon church from all over the world. It was just a long interview. We, we covered so many topics. She's originally from Croatia. We got to talking a lot about, you know, Croatia before, you know, the Iron Curtain fell and, you know, the kind of life in, in the post-Soviet, you know, kind of Croatia and things have changed. And talking about her project she did with this book, which span, it took over a year and a half. It was a, a long, very complicated interview. And I just had trouble putting it back together. All the interviews I've done so far have kind of just followed a pretty natural flow. But this one, it just was, was uh, it was much more intense in, in, in ways to get it down to something that would make sense. So my apologies for taking so long. Um, I'm so glad you're staying with, uh, with, with me on this. And uh, I hope you enjoy. And uh, first, we're just going to listen to a little short story that she did, which is kind of like a sample um, of these number of stories that are in the book. And then we'll kind of get into the main interview where I'm talking to her about, you know, everything. So enjoy. There was the one from uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Oh, yes, that's a great one. They were a couple that they'd gone to study, I think, in France. They went to Switzerland. They got a scholarship through their church, actually, Presbyterian Church. Okay. And and he was like a high, yeah, he was, he was training to be like a minister, right, in the Presbyterian Church, right? They were just students at that time. Okay. Yeah, so they... The church obviously had a, a, a big hold on them, and they had to do religious things as part of their, you know, studying and scholarships. Sort of like at BYU, we have religious classes and right. stuff. So when they meet the church in Switzerland and join the church, uh, they and then when they join the Mormon, they join the LDS, the Mormon church. Yeah, they lose their scholarship. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Presbyterian church and and now, it's like now. immediate. Yeah, they lose it. They lose everything. They got to go it's back. It's immediate. To Look, so they have a choice: either renounce your new membership in the LDS church. Or you leave back to Congo. Yeah, you lose your scholarship, you go back lose, to you scho- lose the scholarship and education opportunity. Yeah. Um, you go back to Congo with nothing. And there is no church. There is no LDS church in Congo. So you're going back to nothing. You were the only two members. And it's amazing that they went from that. And they did choose to, keep, to stay members in the true church. Mm-hmm. You know, And they sacrificed their educational opportunity. They went back to Congo. They... Um, waited and waited until it was the right time you know at that time it was like an international mission sometimes they would get a letter from Mm -hmm. uh, the general authorities you know sort of informing them how the church is doing but they had no church to go to right right and then uh, when it was time to actually establish a church in congo there was another native uh, person from congo that had joined somewhere else that moved back Mm -hmm. and it was interesting how the lord put all of his players into place because it was exactly three people that were needed to sign the documents for the church to be established in Congo. They mm-hmm. had to be native, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Congo. Wow, and there um, were three people right citizens. there. Citizens, yeah. And so, you know, him and his wife and <laughs> that new person that went person. and signed the papers. And today, there is 30,000 members. 
All right, everyone. Now we're going to go right into the main interview with Katarina. Enjoy. <laughs> is that the part you're going to edit out? <laughs> no, this is here. Like right now it's recording. Um, I wasn't going to tell you that actually, but I forgot. Because like it's so much more natural if we just like yeah. start talking. Because then once people get the microphone, they start to like get all like organized. Oh, okay. <laughs> we know each other. So I just figured we could just kind of like start talking. And um, So Katarina Jambresic. Jambresic? Jambresic. Katarina Jambresic, you come from Croatia. That's right. It's a country um, in Central Europe, not Eastern Europe, right? Southern Central Europe. Southern Central Europe, across from Italy. Um, there was a very serious war in your home country in the early 90s, right? Mm -hmm. When you were a, a kid, basically growing up. That's something I you know, learned about in school, remember? That's probably how I became aware of Croatia. Um, first, at least in school. And according to you, Croatia ha has some of the most attractive girls in the world. Can we say this that? This is according to me. This is according to you. You told me that when I first met you, actually. <laughs> so I uh, met you. I, I think you should just go there and make that judgment. We go back a little ways. I was an intern at the United Nations in 2007, and I met you around that time. And I remember talking to you. You said, and you cited an article in a magazine. You said, Croatia has been voted like the number one most attractive girls in the world or the most attractive <laughs> countries in the world. And you cited that with a lot of like pride and distinctiveness. And then you said, well, of course, this is according to my own. This is going to be on the air. This is it's, it's on the air. We're already recording. No comment. No comment. Okay. So, okay. We'll leave that aside. So you grew up in Croatia and... Um, your, your parents, what did your parents do for work? I know your dad was in a business, right? Yeah, or? my dad was a computer programmer and then a CEO of that company. And my mother um, was working at a high-end men's clothing store. Let's try to get a little managing. bit closer. Yeah. yeah. So my dad was a computer programmer uh, right. for a company his whole life, basically. He worked for that same company, became a CEO later. And my mom uh, was managing a high-end clothing store for men, uh, so she met a lot of important individuals throughout her career. So was, she was very connected. So like right in downtown Zagreb, right? Which Correct. is the capital of Croatia. Yes. So she was kind of at the center of like the kind of... You yeah, know, everybody cool. came to her store, you know, that needed good clothes. <laughs> really? I didn't yeah. know that. So your mom was like a... Really she was the manager. She didn't own it, but she like was a very good salesperson. And so she would go to Italy and other countries to pick what they were going to sell. Like very high-end, nice suits. Shirts, ties. And a lot of our clients were some of like the most famous people in Croatia, kind of like the top. Yes, you know. obviously men and uh, ambassadors from different countries. Like she had a lot of foreigners show there too. So you grew up that. So was, your dad was a computer science. Was he a little bit nerdy kind of growing up, or was he kind of a cool computer scientist? Well, he actually studied math and physics. He was okay. going to be a professor, and then at some point, he just couldn't handle having to explain over and over again to students who couldn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so then he decided to go into computer science and be a programmer. Growing up, we did a lot of uh, math and physics problems in our house, my brother and I. That was what we did for fun with our dad, so. Really? Mm-hmm. So TV was not a thing for you? You grew up doing math problems? I mean, we watched TV too, but math was really fun, yeah. We did competitions and in the house. It was just like before I could read anything, I was doing math problems for like. Really? So would you say math is your first language? <laughs> In a sense, like not like the written My word. first written language, well, yeah. Well, well, I mean, you know, because like there's like writing, you know, but you were doing math before you were doing writing, Correct. right? 
Yeah. So it's kind of... You know, I learned to read at school, like, the regular, you know, students do, but uh, as far as math, like, I was pretty advanced because that's what we did for fun. I didn't know that. So your dad, um, so your dad was a a computer scientist and uh, your mom worked there. And then your brother... What, he's younger than you. What, is, what does he do? I met your brother. So he did, uh, he studied economics. Okay. So he's had... Uh, and uh, so uh, high school, you came to America, like your final year of high school, right? Correct. And uh, let's, let's go a little bit into that story. Or, I, guess, I guess this kind of leads into like the book that you've written, which we're talking about, which is called Global Testimony. But um, when you were about 17, you... Let's uh, go into that. How, how did you end up in America studying for your senior year of high school? What was the... Okay, so I was a convert to the church. My parents were not in the church. I was about 12 years old when I met the missionaries. Sure. And so I was definitely converted by about 14 when I actually started reading the Book of Mormon and the Gospel Principles book, and we can go into that later. But at 14, I sort of put BYU on my map. I always wanted to study in the States since I was about 11 years old. Mm-hmm. And BYU just came up as the school to go to. And then I was really excited until I figured out how much it actually cost. And, uh, you know, given the income in Croatia was about five to $700 a month. It was a typical salary. Uh, my parents were no exception. Um, it was just not possible for them to pay for that. And the only way that I could go was to get a scholarship, a full ride scholarship. And so I figured that a lot of Croatian students who went as exchange students to the United States, even if they were like C students in Croatia, because our school system was so demanding, they end up being like A students okay. over in the States. Because you get like great math scores, you know, you could, <laughs> right? I mean, you could ace all the tests basically, score right at the top end, right? I'm sure I could if I, you know, put my mind okay, to okay, it. Okay, <laughs> but, okay, okay, okay. but, you know, sure, given, right. um, just given the school system, it's a bit more rigorous over there. It's a so typically, a C student can't translate into a B or an A student here in the mm-hmm. States, at least for the high school level. And I was, you know, an A student, and I figured, yeah, I can show, like, what I can do. I can definitely get a scholarship if I go there for my senior year of high school. Like, I saw that as the only real hope of actually getting the full BYU scholarship. And so I, I asked a sister missionary to find me a host family in Salt Lake to do that. And it was... Uh, a process of true fate building for me, uh, the way it all worked out. So, we- um, did your parents support that idea? They did not. Um, they they were okay with me going for a year, you know, as an exchange student, if I, that was really my goal. But knowing that I wanted to stay permanently, um, go to school here, live here, that I was changing my religion technically in their eyes, I never felt that I changed it. I just felt I just felt that I found where I belonged. Mm-hmm. So that was really hard for them because they knew that once I left, like I was gone. To, you know, I, w- I would come and visit, but never to really live there anymore. And that was a very hard thing for them. It's, it just it's not in our culture over there to leave, um, to even move that far away in the first place. You know, but just like children don't even leave a home to go to college and things like that. You know, you usually live with your parents. And since college, I mean, really, yeah, and you haven't really been back to live, right? I mean, you visited, no, yeah. you know, a, a lot, but you, you haven't really moved back. Do you keep in touch with some of your friends, like, from, like, high school or growing up that have, like, you know, have other, uh, other like, people moved around as well? Or are you kind of the exception? You know, most, most people you knew are all back. I'm pretty much the exception. I uh, keep in touch with a lot of my elementary school, uh, junior high years. Uh, high school, not so much. Those were, like, the dark ages. <laughs> the dark ages. <laughs> 
high school was, you know, pretty much just academic. You know, over there you choose the high school based on your interests and grades, and it's not in your neighborhood. You know, it's not like your friends are all going to the same high school that went to junior high with you. It's based on your interests and where you get in, and so you could be in a completely different part of the city. So technically, with those people, you don't necessarily end up being as good of friends as you were with, you know, the people that lived around you, and especially with such a rigorous academic um, Really? Even schedule. though the interests are supposed to be a somewhat in alignment, you're not really friends as much with those. But you, it's most because you're so busy with work, it's more competitive. And it's... It's more competitive. It's, you're really a lot more busy yeah. <laughs> with work than you were in junior high. Okay. Uh, you also live very far away from each other. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, you don't right. have cars. Uh, right. You know, you don't even drive over there until you're 18. So it's just not as practical to really uh, hang out with those people a lot. And you have, you know, seven, eight hours of homework every night at school. And what did you study? So you studied, I'm, I'm guessing, Croatian, obviously, and then... Russian, perhaps, and then mm, English? No, no Russian. Um, Croatian uh, and English. Well, I had some classes in English, so I went to a bilingual school. Mm -hmm. So those were just special testings that we did that you could get into that program. Um, then you can choose a foreign language uh, with the Croatian and English. And I chose Italian just for fun. I don't know why. I had some French back in junior high. Yeah. Um, so, well, yeah. a lot of Italian-speaking people in Croatia, right? Because Italy is so close. I mean, there's a lot of commerce, a lot of connection, right? The southern part of Croatia is uh, very influenced by Italy. Oh, like okay. it, it used to be a part of Italy, whereas the northern part was under Austro-Hungarian Empire. Okay. So even our accents are quite different. When you speak Croatian, the south speaks with Italian accent, you know, and they have some Italianized words. Right. I wouldn't say that people really fluently speak Italian that much. Oh, okay. Uh, but we used to go shopping there a lot. During right. communism, you know, on a Saturday, you would just go even grocery shopping to Italy or Austria because everything, there was more abundance of products and it was cheaper over there. Sure. You could do that. How far of a drive was that? A couple hours. Oh, really? Yeah, not too bad. Yeah, you just go across the border and just, yeah. it should be like a day trip, right? Yeah, and people like literally be buying groceries. Like it's not even, you know, just VCRs or whatever. Really? Yeah. And just stock up because the groceries were even cheaper? Or well, the groceries guess... were cheaper and again, the diversity, you know. Right. So in, during communism, like there's no competition, right? That you have like in a capitalistic market. And so, you know, shelves would be empty. Like you didn't come there until 4 p.m. Like stuff is going off the shelves. Like maybe next week they'll have more. <laughs> Anyone who knows you probably knows that you are a big fan of food. Uh, <laughs> was food ever like not available at grocery, like at the grocery store growing up? And you're like, Mom, we need to go to Italy and stock up on pasta or whatever. <laughs> Did you have any? Is there anything like that? I for love that. Uh, my love of food is so obvious. Well, I I can't say that because having grandparents uh, in the country, both sets of my grandparents lived on a farm, and we had literally everything that you could imagine. So you went out to your grandparents to like eat a lot, so, or, they, or they brought in so, food because you're in the well, city, right? And they live like an hour outside the city. Or yeah, something. they live an hour outside the city, and my parents were from there. And basically every Saturday or even Sunday we were there. So that's why it took a a little while for me to even get to know the church actually go on Sundays, you know, because we'd be out of town so much. Oh, right. So my, my parents were helping a lot with the orchards and, like, vineyards. I mean, like, my grandparents really were diversified in their cultivation. Um, and so we would just stock up for the week, you know, from 
just the gardens that we had there and had like really good food. What was your favorite food growing up? So my favorite food was um, the meal my grandma would prepare and she basically cooked that for years every time I was there I didn't even know if she could cook something else because I basically made that what menu was it? And <laughs> what was it some kind of a meat it was, potato it was the roasted chicken roasted chicken okay. uh, a whole chicken roasted and then she would make mashed potatoes uh, with homemade sour cream mm-hmm. and salt and then she would put those drippings of the, the chicken was roasted in into the potatoes which oh, kind of was salty yeah. and creamy and it was just nice. the most amazing thing and then of course like we started with the soup which is typical over there. What kind of soup? And like a tomato soup? No, like a chicken noodle. Chicken noodle type. soup. Mm-hmm. And then so you have the, the soup and then the chicken mashed potatoes and green salad, which was, you know, lettuce with um, salt, oil, and vinegar. That's a very typical dressing. We don't really have as many dressings as you guys do. It's Yeah. Yeah, oil, vinegar, salt, that's the... Staples. That's a good way to go. No, I, I like it that way, actually. Interesting. So you grew up that and you were eating, uh, so you miss your grandmother's food probably, right? That's probably, I do. Yeah. I have learned to make my own, but it's not the same. So, so let's go ahead. You, so you met the, the missionaries for the, the Mormon church in Croatia when you were about 14. You decided to come to the U.S. and you stayed with a Mormon family in Utah mm-hmm. to go to high school. And then you were baptized when you were 18. So after after being in the U.S. for about a year, you were baptized. Were your parents, they were okay with it at that point, or they were still basically against it? Yeah, so obviously, you know, they didn't give me permission until I was okay. 18. Right. Um, so, no, they didn't really change their mind about it. My dad um, was not a very religious person. You know, they're both Catholic technically, but he never really went to church other than for holidays. Or uh, So for him, it was like, well, I don't, really think much of religion so to him it wasn't that big a deal he just thought it was dumb basically you know uh, my mom on the other hand uh, comes from a pretty religious family and she has always gone you know she made us go to mass every sunday and even when i wanted to go to lds church she just made sure i go to mass first and then i could go wherever i wanted so you were double dipping huh? yeah i was double dipping and and there were times when you know she was out of town and i was alone and just didn't go <laughs> And then she'd be like, well, did you go to church? And I'm like, yeah, I shouldn't ask which church. You know? oh. <laughs> but <laughs> I did go. <laughs> um, just to the LDS. But anyway, so she was not too happy, which I expected. And I was actually glad that I was in Salt Lake. This was my, my birthday was in March, and I wasn't going home till June of that year. So it was nice to have some time for her to, to sort of accept it and, like, cool off a bit about it. And so... I mean, my parents are not the kind that would disown me or something. You know, they always love me, and they they always let me make my own decisions, which is really great. And, you know, even when I was coming to the States, obviously they weren't too happy about me leaving, and they supported my dream, even though they did not understand it or support themselves, and I really appreciated that sacrifice. Really? So in, in the book you write... Um not everyone has, there's many interesting stories, but um, some people unfortunately don't quite have that, you know, support in the end. So it's, it's good to have that when you do. Um, let, let's talk about this book. Um, I, I first just want to mention that, you know, you have done translation for the LDS Church General Conference. They've been done for, for a number of years now you've done it, right? Yes. For the Croatian language. Mm-hmm. And you go to Salt Lake like once or twice a year usually? Yeah, I go for every conference. Every conference, and you translate the sessions, and uh, what? So uh, the talks are given in advance, 
Okay. And uh, so we already have the translated text in front of us. So you get the headphones and the microphone, you hear them in one ear, you hear yourself in another, and you just adjust so that you can follow the speaker as you're reading the talk. And you, you just have to be careful uh, if they change something that you catch it, or sometimes they'll skip a whole paragraph. You don't want to... You want to sort of voice over them, but be a little behind. You know, yeah. Just sort of make sure. So you're doing it live, right? You're just like maybe giving like a one second delay, pretty much? Pretty much. I try to be right on top of them so that like when they're laughing, the audience is laughing. You're not. You've been doing that for a while, and um, I guess you had this idea to write a book com combining testimonies from all around the world. Where did the idea come from, actually? Let's just. Okay, so the idea um, for a couple of years, I, you know, whenever I make. I don't really make New Year resolutions, per se. I always had this idea of that I needed to author a book on faith, and I just couldn't really pinpoint what the particular subject should be, because, you know, you have, like, in the, I just couldn't really pinpoint where my role would be in this, but I, I always felt inspired to author a faith-based book, and it wasn't until a couple years of this sort of soul-searching I was at a fireside uh, that was talking about um, just the the sort of influence that the saints can have. It was about Jabari Parker, actually. And, oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, the basketball know, player. Yeah, what yeah. a great influence he is in his sphere, of, you know. Um, and we were talking about some conversion stories, and I, I just called a friend after that fire. So I was just really, really inspired by it and, and just, like, the amount of good one person can do and... We were just talking about these conversion stories, and my friend was like, you know, somebody needs to write these amazing conversion stories down. And it was just like a light bulb went on, and I'm like, that's it. Like, I should, and they should be from all over the world. And by the time I was done with that conversation, like, I hung up the phone, and I could just envision the title, A Global Testimony. <laughs> <laughs> And I, wow. I texted it to him. It's like, oh, that's this perfect spin, you know. And then the next day, I was emailing, you know, Claudia Bushman, who was in my ward, and, you know, some other, like, Ann Manson and um, Brad Wilcox and just people I respect, you know, within the church. And they're like, yeah, it's a great idea. Just do it, you know. And I really started, like, literally right away. I was like, this is it, you know. This is the theme I wanted. And I started collecting conversion stories from everywhere, and it's been great. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that because you got the endorsement of uh, Richard and Claudia Bushman, who are two pretty fairly you know, well-known uh, authors and former uh, professors at Columbia University. Um, you also have David Archuleta. How'd you get that one? So my David. favorite professor at BYU um, was his mission president. Oh. And this professor and I like go a long way back. And every time I'm in Utah, you know, I set up an appointment with him and we chat and catch up. And so. Uh, as I was thinking, like, who would be a good endorser for this kind of book? Because I wanted to reach a broad audience. So, like, Richard and Claudia obviously, you know, have their name out there, the church history, and maybe, like, the older crowd. And then who would, you know, draw in the teenage crowd and, you know, like young adults, like people sure, who are preparing sure. to serve missions that would really benefit from reading a book like this. Right. You know, this is how these people are converted from all over the world, and this is what touched them, the spirit, you know, um, and so David Archuleta was just like an obvious choice. <laughs> and so I just emailed my professor. I'm like, hey, these are the endorsements I'm trying to get. Guess what your role is? <laughs> He's like, oh, David? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then I just sent him some sample stories, you know, as I was still writing the book. And, um, and what, what struck me is 
A number of the stories reference like the kind of turmoil or conditions that were um, happening in their country. Like their country was in some sort of period of transition. Either you know some countries were transitioning away from communism, you know, or maybe their life was in a period of transition. Like they were like going to school in another country. Like some of the people from Africa, you know, they studied in Europe, and then that's kind of when they kind of were looking for answers a little more. But but I found that theme in, in a number of the stories. I don't know what, what your thoughts on that are. Is yeah, certain countries, definitely, because you have, uh, obviously, the fall of communism, you know, 1990s. A lot of these countries didn't have a religion. You know, Croatia was predominantly Catholic, even in communism. But a lot of the former Soviet Union countries, you know, the religion really was not part of life, and a lot of people just did not talk religion, they did not believe in God, that it just wasn't, you know, something that they lived with. And so you get into this uh, open era when mm-hmm. all of a sudden all these foreigners are coming in and they're bringing different religions and now people are actually learning for the first time of what's out there. It's not surprising that that was the time where, you know, so many were coming into the church and, you know, mm-hmm. looking for answers. And now it's like, okay, well, we have choices, we also have responsibilities and you know, it's, it's people anxious, and so there's a lot of answers that need to be answered. Yeah, questions. It, sorry, that need to be answered. Yeah, and and it seems like around like college age, or maybe when people, yeah, you know, like you say, it's not really much of a surprise. But if a country, or maybe just the conditions that are around you, like you personally, are thrown into kind of a new situation mm-hmm. that forces you to kind of rethink things, I think that's, um, I don't know, it's a chance to kind of be a little more open. One, what do you think makes these conversion stories so compelling? Because it's almost like you can you read each one and yeah it does get a little bit some things repeat but it never really feels very you know monotonous or it's like it doesn't say it just it just doesn't feel like like a story that's like old or worn out just because it's just something so vibrant about it I, I don't know if it's because each one has conflict and each one kind of shows humans reacting as humans do in like positive and negative ways um, but and then ultimately, like at least in these cases, there's a very happy ending, and there's you know, usually there's a very rich spiritual component too, yeah. which I think um, really that makes it a very like kind of transcending kind of experience to read. But well, so first fresh. of all, they're all written in first person. Okay, yeah, I mean that that's what I think. Like it just kind of jumps out to me at why these stories are so fresh and compelling. The person to tell their story, even though I did a lot of editing, and obviously their English wasn't ideal, but those are all their words. You know, I just really just edited them. What's really compelling about it is that you you take an individual who is either struggling or um, just having a purposeless life or maybe they're fine in it but they need something more mm-hmm. and, and you you touch upon those moments when they first realized that there is a God or that um, they believed in God but there there just wasn't that like strong relationship with him. And, and you touch upon those first moments when they really see the product of their prayers, when they really are touched by the Spirit. When um, even like in my own story, like when I first read about like premortal life, and and it, it brought that familiar feeling of like I knew this before. And, and it's not like it's not even like you are converting, but you are recognizing what you you once knew. And that is just such a powerful moment that I really wanted to stress in those stories, like that conversion process. So not just, you know, I came from here, I met the missionaries, joined the church, and this is how my life changed. But I wanted to stress that point of, like, how do you realize that this is true? Mm -hmm. Like, what was your conversion process in that, like, your thought process? 
when you kneel down like what like what was that moment where you really knew and for some people it's really gradual and for some people it really is a moment you know something happens where they're like I'm not convinced and this is why and those are just really powerful feelings and then as you go through that and then you see like they're fate tested and, and they have trials because you always do you know mm-hmm. and you see sort of the stories like are a span of their life you know so they, they start with like where they came from how the church sort of came into their life the yeah and you try and to then, throw in a little bit about that country too right i mean yeah just a little like background stories, you know bit, yeah. especially if they're talking about worshiping ancestors or paying dowries right. or you know things that are not like so clear in the western culture like you want them to sort of expand on like what this means and why they're in a situation they are yeah. um you know in africa it's really hard to get a marriage license you know so to us we don't know like what why are they just living together but to them it's you know like it took a year of sacrifice and like earning a lot of money to be able to get married. Like it's a, it's a big deal. Yeah, I, I think one of the things, yeah, it's probably one of the, my favorite parts of the book, I think, is each one you explain very quickly kind of like why it's significant. Like, well, in this country we believe this and it's often believe that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a big deal to have any change, so that caused a lot of difficulty. I mean, but you, usually it's like only like a few sentences, I think. It's, but it's quick. Like you get, oh, wow, that's, that's a huge... Issue instead yeah, of taking, it helps to understand the background right, right. that they're coming from to see why these things were so hard or like why the sacrifice was required. But then as you go into, you know, away from the conversion and into like that strong testimony building portion where, you know, they had a specific trial or something um, and you see how their faith has gotten them through and you read these things and then their testimony afterwards and just seeing the hand of the Lord in so many different ways, in so many different lives that is specifically catered to that person just knowing how individual uh, the lord's approach is to us um, how empowering that is in your own circumstances when you maybe don't have anyone to relate to um, knowing that the lord is there specifically aware of you and that your prayers are heard no matter how long it may take for them to be answered or whether they're answered in the way that you want them to but you know that he is a, aware, and, and B, has your best interest in mind. And just reading more and more of those stories like solidifies that belief, because sometimes we can dwindle and wonder, you know, how much is on us, like how much more can I do? Um, whereas like you can really rely on the Lord a lot, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a good summary. You the, the book covers about 60 countries. Correct. I really can't pick favorites. It's just too difficult. Oh, come on. <laughs> there, is, there is great stories in, on every continent. Um, they're very different. You know, you can, for example, like you can see Latin America and how, like, they usually came from a religion and then they just found answers to their questions that, you know, other religions couldn't answer. And then you have um, the Eastern Europe, uh, where they didn't really have a religion a lot of times. And then you have Africa, where they're worshiping ancestors and, you know, uh, all these different Christian religions. The target market for this kind of book is pretty large. Uh, obviously, it's LDS predominantly. Mm-hmm. But I feel like investigators would especially, um, you know, benefit from it. Yeah, well, yeah or investigators from each s- specific country, I think. You know, it means a lot. I mean, I showed it to a friend who's Chinese and... And I was like, here's a story from China. And, you know, and they were maybe weren't in- as interested in some of the countries, but they're like, oh, yeah, China, I'm from China, you know, definitely. You know, yeah. and they can totally connect with that immediately, I think. So you have 60 countries for people to choose from, you know, so. 
if they have a heritage or connection to a certain country, I think that is definitely what stands out. Editing this process, it was kind of a beast, right? Yeah. It was, <laughs> you spent a lot of time, a long time editing this. How, how long? Like six, uh, seven months or so? Or? Well, you know, as the stories were coming in, uh, I would read them, and then if I selected that particular story for the book, I would, you know, uh, email back and forth with the person to expand on specific topics, or I would add more questions depending on what they had written. So that preliminary process was, you know, pretty casual, and like the whole process of creating this book was about a year and a half. So once I had that, and actually had most of them, and I started really editing for the book, that was like four months full-time work. I mean, from the time you get up. And you have a full-time job, right? And you have a full-time job. I have a part-time job, actually. I work three days a week in the office, and I'm sort of flexible. So around those days, I was basically working on the book 24-7. Wow. Because I really wanted it out by Christmas. Like, that was my deadline. (laughs) And you did, right? Just barely, right? Yeah, I barely met it, but um, it was out. And, uh, yeah, editing was very difficult, actually, a lot more difficult than I thought. And you're, yeah. a, you're a grammarian. I mean, you're excellent at it, right? I mean, just... Yeah, well, a perfectionist in grammar, definitely. I mean, when you explain it to people, do, do people get it? I mean, and what I, I, I feel like I can get it at least a, a bit that, you know, you're trying to show that, you know, everyone's unified. And even though they have different stories in different countries, everyone has this, like, unifying feature that, you know, if you have a testimony that it can, you know, transcend, you know, country boundaries and all that kind of stuff. And... And the stories are interesting because they're so personal and so different, but they also have like a you know a commonality in that they're they're spiritual kind of richness to them and uh, and people searching for answers usually and, and getting answers right. Mm-hmm. Do people get it? Do they kind of get that this this is a bit different? I mean, this is something I don't think somebody's done something quite like this. Yeah, you know, I haven't actually advertised it a lot. Um, it was basically the word of mouth right now and Facebook, so I haven't invested a lot in advertising. I'm trying to get into bookstores right now and. Things like that, but the people that have read it, like the feedback has been phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, they are just loving it. Like I hear people like they couldn't put it down until. The, I mean, it's we're talking 450 pages, you know, of conversion stories. But even I, like when I had read it so many times, and then before I was submitting it to a couple bookstores for review, I read it again just to make sure there is like, again, the perfect grammar. <laughs> perfect grammar. And. Even for like the 60th time that I've probably read it, like it still made me cry. Oh wow! Like it, it is just that powerful. Like, these stories, and and I think like just the ability, the fact that they're told in the first person, that they're personal accounts, that they talk about their feelings and their personal relationship and how that developed and how they could see the hand of God. Like there's no way that you can read this and not be empowered mm-hmm. in your own life. Like you you can like it so liken so much of this to you and even if it's not directly applicable you see the pattern like even just having like this project to work on was so important for me because I felt that I was doing something that was my passion because I love anything international and I love the gospel (laughs) it was like this perfect blend you know for me so you but felt then, empowered. I think that's the that's the magic word here. You said empowered yeah. quite a few times. Here. I have. Empowered, I, it empowered, is empowered, empowered, empowering. You just read it. And you'll see why. <laughs> I agree. I, there was um, you actually interviewed uh, Carlos Martins, who was my mission president. Um, you got a hold of him. He's I like did. a billionaire now. <laughs> so there's a lot of people in the world trying to get a hold of that guy. But you got through to him. And he submitted his story within three days. Within three days. Yeah. Wow. No edits. Very little, and oh. you know, I was like, 
you know, this is how you see successful people, you know. So, you well, know, he's written a few books. He's written a few books, too. Sometimes. Yeah, because sometimes you have to chase, you know, and be like, okay, write more, like, or do you have it? And it's, like, been, like, two months, you know? And then you get someone this busy, but, like, he knows what, what matters. Like, he was just so gung-ho on it. And he's been very helpful, actually, introducing me to people now. So. Successful person. So if Katerina ever asks you for anything, get back to her within three days. <laughs> right? Yeah, that guarantees so success. You know? It just speaks volumes. <laughs> average length of a book on Amazon, I believe, was like 60,000 words, and this is almost three times that. For a self-published book, you mean? For any book. Or for any book. Yeah. And three times? Really? Three times that. Yeah. Obviously, you know, again, I played with fonts. So it's long, but it goes quick, people. <laughs> I love it. You know, and you mentioned this before, but, you know, this was a grueling, difficult process. But it sounds to me that, I mean, this is probably one of the most, I guess, triumphant things of your life, right? Getting this project done. Oh, yeah. One, I, one of most, I really one believe of. in it. And that's, you know, you know, I always, when I believe in something, I put 100%. And uh, a lot of the jobs I've had, you know, were sort of just jobs to, you know, make money. It wasn't like a passion sure. of mine. Sure. And so when you have something like this that you really believe in, I mean, the gospel of Jesus Christ, <laughs> of course, you're going to put you're all in it, and um, I think that I was really blessed to have this opportunity, and you know, the means to do it, the time to do it, um, and, and that I got the right stories. And I think even just the accomplishment, I mean, in a way, I mean, you kind of mentioned this earlier, but it just kind of takes away like any other kind of like things, you know, that you know, maybe were kind of difficult or disappointing along the way, right? Because, I mean, you get it done, it's kind of like, ah, oh, yes, it's done, you know? It's like it's like climbing the mountain, you know? And, like, <laughs> all the pain, suffering along the way, it just means nothing. Because once you're... Yeah, because once you start uh, getting emails, you know, I read your book, and I was so inspired, and I, my husband and I are now concerning serving a mission, and, you know, consider serving a mission. You deserve credit for gathering them. I mean, they're not all your story, but, yeah. I mean, in, in a way, I mean, they're, they're part of your story, right? Because isn't that part of, like, the message, like, the global testimony? It's all kind of part, we're all kind of part of this similar storyline or whatever, which is, you know, people searching for truth, you know, and, and confronting difficulty and somehow getting through, right? So Yeah, and it's also an eye-opener to see, like, how much sacrifice some people have had to go through just to go to church. I mean, you read some of these stories and, you know, how hard it was to even get there, whether it was the family, you know, forbidding you from doing it, or the government. Or you know, one lady, she had to go over, like, took her two or three hours. She had to go over, like, 20-foot walls yeah. uh, in Palestine, right? Palestine, Palestine, Palestine. correct, you know, and the only church was in Jerusalem. So she had to, like, go to, like, yeah, this really, like, and long... she wasn't allowed there, calm. so and it's amazing. 14 years she did that, and she was almost arrested once. I mean... That's great, Katerina. Well, um, any final words of inspiration? Well, I just want to say that, um, again, as I mentioned before, uh, the emphasis here was on that conversion process and how those people knew it was true, like how they gained their testimony. So you're, you're dealing with like really raw, you know, personal feelings and data. And uh, it's really uh, easy to identify with. Um, you can be really inspired and touched, and, and it changes lives for the better. And you, you gather all this spiritual power into one book. Um, you, you can't not be touched. Uh, and I just, I just want to leave that message. Is there one country that, in the stories there, you kind of feel like, now I really got to go to that country you know, before I, I mean, I'm sure there's many, but like, you know, there's one that stands out, like, kind of like, wow, I really need to see this country just because the story you read was so 
made that country satisfied. I really can't say that. I mean, I'm sort of it. attached to all these people now. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I want to okay. go meet them all, just like have a tour, you know? Yeah. And just have dinner with every one of them. <laughs> How did you meet most of the people? Was it just through, like, friends of friends? Through, like... Uh, so there were different avenues. I didn't want this book to be a book of my friends and my friends' friends. Yeah. I wanted to give everyone an opportunity. Um, not being able to use church channels, you know, like mission presidents or bishops, you had to sort of go around that um, because it's not a church project, it was a private project. Mm -hmm. And so luckily I was um, a translator and there are like 92 languages that we do in one session. So you have a lot of foreign people there. Mm -hmm. And I went from booth to booth when I was in translating and getting their emails and they connected me with the right people in their countries. And then I joined every a mission group on Facebook that accepted me okay. <laughs> on Earth. There were some that rejected you. They, yeah. So they all know Katharina. Yeah, know. and then like I would meet these people later, like at that beach or something. They're like, did you serve in Bolivia? I don't think you serve in Bolivia. And you're but like, like yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, I mean, you just walk away. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that was very helpful. Um, obviously, some people I knew from before, like Croatia and a few other countries, and also uh, being in New York, it's very international. Oh, sure. I also have a lot of return missionary friends. Um, and that's what I, another thing I want to uh, mention is that diversity that's in the book. You know, we're talking um, people who are um, the pioneers. It's fascinating. It's just fascinating you were able to get all these you know, stories. <laughs> You know, some were like people like that that like kind of helped, you know, found like the LDS church in a whole new country. Others were just kind of teenagers and they had difficulties or something like that or, or just, you know, just others. Right? I mean, but there's, it just runs the whole gamut. Um, educated, not educated. So anyways, there's something in there for everyone, everybody. Enjoy the book, read it, and uh, let us know what you think. All right, everyone, that's the show. Thanks for listening. Uh, please share this on Facebook. Uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, any social media, tell your friends about it. Um, if you have any questions or suggestions for the show, please email me at uh, themarkpodcast at gmail.com. And if you would like to know more about the book, uh, A Global Testimony, you can find that at aglobaltestimony.com or also on Facebook. There's a Facebook page. You can find it and uh, check it out there. So thanks. Till next time.